Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. This is a special program today, live from the Monroe County History Center. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire. And today we're going to talk about the effect of private equity control uh, on local news. We have three guests with us here uh, at the, I was going to say in the studio, but we're on the stage here at the History Center. Nicholas Huther is the, an assistant professor of finance at the Kelly School of Business. Uh, his expertise is in private equity. Jason Pfeiffer is an associate professor of journalism in the IU Media School. And Sarah Vaughn is here. Sarah is the All Things Considered producer and newscaster for WFIU and the leading reporter on our Paper Cuts Private Equity Project. If you want to uh, join the program, uh, you should be able to give us a call. Um, tweet. Tweet. You email. Can tweet, tweet <laughs> or send it to X, I guess, now. Um, we're at Noon Edition. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Before we begin, let me just say that this show is a preview of a reporting project called Paper Cuts that is exploring how private equity control of newspapers has affected communities in South Central Indiana and solutions being discussed to bolster local news coverage. The reporting is supported by a grant from the Pointer Institute, a nonprofit journalism school and research organization in St. Petersburg, Florida. So I want to start the program today and, and ask uh, Nicholas to be our first speaker, just to talk, just to answer, if you could, in a, a minute or two, give us a primer on private equity and, you know, when is it good and when is it maybe not so good? Um, well, thank you so much, Paul, first of all, for the invitation of being here, part of the panel, and um, give my chance to, to, to basically address my opinion. Um, well, private equity basically is um, more or less considered as a tool um, for, I would say, profit maximization. So you have private equity firms going basically into various industries, and um, what they do is they try to they try to basically maximize profits, right? And there are various ways they can do this. They can either like cut costs, they can try to like increase um, revenues uh, by expanding, I don't know, products or, um, you know, like try to, I mean, a lot of times you see in the news, obviously also the reports about like staffing and like you know, you're saying reducing staff and, and, and using basically those measures to, to generate more profit. And um, they have high incentives to do so because they have option-like contracts, so they basically get compensated on the upside um, that they make on, um, basically don't really get punished for, for, for losses. So you have these strong profit-maximizing incentives that these companies or these private equity firms have, and then they are, they are running funds, so they're basically collecting money that is coming from investors such as large pension funds they are um, heavily invested in private equity we have endowments so I use endowment for example is also heavily invested in private equity and that money is more or less managed by these private equity firms and they go in all industries I mean they bought the UFC in 2016 they go into fracking they um, are heavily invested in the gun industry they are invested in in use um, they're basically invested in anything you can think of and um, the question is, are these always, you know, always good, good? Yeah. always bad? <laughs> always good, good or always, always bad, bad. Yeah, yeah it, it can vary. 
It depends I who you are. Exactly, too. exactly. Yeah. I, I want to ask, I know you've done a little research recently on, uh, you know, we're here basically today because Gannett has um, purchased the local family-owned group. Um, can you sort of track the ownership and how private equity is involved when you look at Gannett ownership? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, so originally, um, if we think about local news in, in, in um, central and in southern Indiana, right, it's, it's been, um, um, we have companies such as, you know, South Bend Tribute and um, Herald Times in Bloomington that have been traditionally owned by um, Shirts Communications. And Shirts Communication has been um, bought in 2019 by um, a, a private equity firm that is called New Media Investment Group. So New Media Investment Group is basically a parent company of um, a company called Gatehouse Media, who, um, who started originally um, in, 20, uh, in 2005. Um, and um, when they started in 2005, they, they, they've been acquiring a lot of local news across the country and originally, uh, and, and did this with a lot of debt financing. And eventually they came to a point where they struggled to repay the debt and had to file for bankruptcy in 2013. So once they filed for bankruptcy, a new name basically, or they merged as this, this new media investment group, um, which is a private equity firm, which then ultimately bought um, shorts that basically owns local news in, in central and, and southern Indiana. So after that, transaction in 2019, things obviously as, as Bob and Sarah investigated changed quite a bit. And I, one thing I wanted to point out that this private equity group that bought Shorts, which owns um, local news in, or used to own local news in, in central and um, southern Indiana, is actually um, owned by SoftBank. And SoftBank, I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, it's basically the largest venture capital fund. They have roughly $100 billion on, um, assets under management. And what they do is they write checks. So, so you can imagine if you ever have an idea and you want to start something like you know, a local Uber, there's no chance to do this because they've been writing checks to like, likes like WeWork, Uber, um, DoorDash, for such a long time, even if at times when they were struggling to keep them alive, alive to create hype, and basically eliminating more or less local competition. And um, well, that's kind of like not maybe not surprising. We see that in news as well because, again, they have they have the power of writing these checks and obviously have an incentive to, you know, to eradicate any comp competition that you see on the local base. Okay, I want to turn to Sarah Vaughn next. Sarah's been the lead reporter on this. So, you know, we, we talk, we're based in Bloomington. We talk a lot about Bloomington things. What have you found in your reporting uh, that strikes you about, you know, this South Central Indiana region? Just a couple of top, top line thoughts. Um, that we actually do have news deserts in the area. Um, I've talked to former newspaper reporters in Lawrence County and Owen County, and they use that phrase to describe their situation. And, and news deserts is a, a term that's been coined by researchers to um, 
to designate an area that doesn't have a comprehensive source of local news. Um, and what's happening in those, in those places, there are some reporters who are spearheading an effort to, um, like Nicole I see in the audience, who are, are spearheading um, news startups you know, and that's a that's a real brave task given the the funding issues in rural counties. Um, but also, uh, you know, the the thing that that common people I'm sorry, not common people, but you know, the everyday citizen and um, politicians and and everyone is also battling is the the who's rushing in to fill the gap. It's often well-meaning or possibly slightly uh, slanted <laughs> folks who are trying to fill the gap with information that may not be as reliable as you would get from a reporter who's had training in journalism ethics. Um, and so, you know, we've talked to politicians who are concerned because they're having to um, educate the public themselves when they call up and complain about something, they've seen something online that isn't, hasn't been reported factually. Um, and so, you know, there's a, lo there's a lot of battling mis- and disinformation um, in, in the counties that we looked at, which was Monroe, Lawrence, Owen, and Morgan County. And again, in Morgan and Owen, there are former Gannett employees who are, um, or in Nicole's case, a former Gatehouse employee, who are taking the bull by the horns and starting new startups so that they can provide that really essential local government coverage as well as the high school sports coverage that everyone craves, right? So um, there are hardworking folks out there trying to fill the gap with, you know, ethical reporting, balanced reporting. Yeah, and, and let me say, you know, um, from our seats up here, we're not trying to criticize any local reporters who still work in this ecosystem. Uh, they're doing the very best they can um, with a lot fewer resources. Jason, when you look at the, the local news scene, I know uh, we shared a panel once in Bedford to talk about local news down there a couple years ago, a few years ago now. Um, you know, what, what are your top line thoughts about what's happening in the local news business? Yeah, I mean, it's a common story, of course, what we're witnessing here in southern central Indiana. The consolidation of or attempted consolidation of a lot of these these uh, news organizations, newspapers in particular, that have been longstanding. And not just uh, newspapers folding, of course, but just being gutted, downsized, and the phrase ghost newspapers. I know uh, the conversation before uh, we were on air, that, that came up, and that's... I think that's very true of a lot of places. So maybe it still is there, technically, uh, but it's maybe perhaps a lot of the reporting is uh, pulled from other places and just, you know, fill the pages uh, from, say, Indianapolis in a, in a local paper. Uh, th those sort of things happening. So a, a shell of what it once was. And, and that's concerning in the sense that if we think about the implications of this, I mean, uh, accountability uh, is, is certainly an important part of local journalism and, and uh, a lot of uh, people I think yearn for that and can easily see the value of that but just in the in the sense of having a sense of of place and connection and, and kind of contributing to the social fabric of some sort of community uh, I, I think that is one of the, the the very concerning things to me in addition to you know lack of accountability and uh, just being informed, uh, and that has implications for things like voter turnout and um, and just being informed voters for those who do turn out, and um, uh, 
patterns of, of polarization and, and that sort of thing if you don't have that sense of local connection of a strong social fabric in, in the local level uh, that has implications if you're getting all your news from the national level um, which is of course very polarized before I turn it over to Sarah Whitmire for a question I do want to say that we've done a lot of uh, data collection in this so we do have numbers that we'll be sharing when we start publishing this uh, series of stories on the 27th, which is 10 days from today, that show the declines in staffing, declines in number of journalists, declines in days of the week that are being published, declines, uh, uh, we did a, a, a content analysis taking the month of September from 2014, 2018, 2023, so we could show declines um, of local content, even while sure still owned the newspaper. Uh, it was very slight, compared to the uh, accelerated decline since she sold the newspaper and um, some other uh, circulation numbers which are really very scary to look at so sir yeah I, I feel like we do need to sort of say that newspapers were in trouble before private equity came in right uh, Jason do you want to comment on that because um, private equity by a lot of people's standards is this really bad scary thing um, but newspapers weren't on the, the upward trend necessarily before. Absolutely, and I think you can point to a lot of uh, contributing factors. Uh, one of the obvious ones might be the internet, but uh, even saying it's pinning the blame of the internet isn't quite fair. In terms of uh, deregulation that uh, kind of uh, back in 90s, maybe even 80s, I think you could argue contributes to that. Um, in, in terms of deregulation of media, but certainly as you have some of the, the things that the internet brought us, such as uh, cars.com or Craigslist, right? So that, that chips, chips at the monopoly that newspapers might have had in the classifieds, and there are domino effects there, right? So it, uh, it means that uh, people are going elsewhere, and, and maybe that's not, that's not the go-to place for some of those things any longer. And of course, we we have um, the implications in terms of, you know, it less appealing maybe for advertisers, and uh, so you know they're advertising elsewhere because not as many eyeballs. And uh, oh, 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 I think uh, there's a whole host of reasons we could point to, but absolutely, uh, it, it certainly is not uh, something that just in the last five ten years, uh, although yeah. we you know precipitous decline, but there's a lot of factors contributing to that over the course of decades. And um, you know, it's it's a very complicated uh, problem <laughs> to I think trace all the the contributing factors, and it's also a very complicated problem to solve mm -hmm. you know, for that same reason. Yeah, uh, Nicholas, maybe you can speak to this, but I know one of the things that Sarah was talking about early on in her reporting was this idea that when she when you were interviewing folks, and they were like, "Well, private equity is a success in a lot of people's eyes." Um, so something about just the measuring stick is just different in terms of what folks like Jason, who study local news, might see versus what an economist sees. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, when I, when I had my initial um, conversation with Bob and Sarah, we basically talked about how can you view private equity. Private equity, you know, it's, you can't really view private equity more like, you know, as, as a cause of evil or like, you know, like as a, as a tool of, 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 you know, good for society. I think you really have to differentiate between what it is, and it is a tool of profit maximization. It's basically infusion of, of high, like, like of, of, you know, firms that have a high incentive to maximize profits. Um, so, and 
Now, once you do that, it really depends a little bit on the industry, what you got get out of this, right? I mean, if you think about like more like a rather, I don't know, um, manufacturing-based um, industry, a lot of times what you will find is that you see like certain processes are getting automated and you see less, um, you know, problems with injuries and, you know, like, like, like safety at the workplace could be improved. So that would be something that we consider like maybe as a positive externality. But then you also have, you know, industries such as like, I mean, another one would be healthcare, where like a lot of like, you know, reports have been surfaced that, that they're all, you know, I mean, profit maximization, as you can imagine, are not necessarily always the best in healthcare, right? I mean, we have, I mean, I don't know, take American Dental Group that is buying all these, these dentist office, offices across the country, right? So now you might be getting fillings or teeth are getting pulled that, that are actually healthy and don't need to be pulled because it actually generates profit. So, you know, that, that would be the negative externality. And, and with news, I think on the one hand, you can argue, well, if private equity comes in, they probably uh, have a strong incentive to keep, to keep um, in a way, like companies alive and, you know, try to make sure they are profitable. But then the question is at what cost for society? And, um, I, and I think that, you know, like, like companies that might have been struggling, like, you know, if you would take the example of, of um, Gatehouse Media that basically filed bank, uh, bankruptcy in 2013. So surely private equity helped them to revive or revitalize basically the, their, their business model. But again, at the cost of, you know, um, syndicating across different news uh, uh, papers, right? Trying to like nationalize news because it's easier to syndicate across papers if you nationalize news and then that hurts communities. That that's a, that's a, that's a you know negative externality when you think about society. Can I can yeah. I just add something about the research that we've been looking at? We've been looking at research from three different universities, and the NYU researchers uh, recently put out a paper in twenty this year, and and they've concluded both yet last year and this year that. PE ownership leads to higher digital circulation, they invest in technology, and therefore the chance of the paper closing are lowered. So it really does depend even on the newspaper chain that they're buying and how successful they are in, in converting subscriptions to digital. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, by, by, many, by many measuring sticks, they're saving papers that might otherwise have been closed, even if those papers don't look like what we expect them to look like or providing the content that we expect them to, to provide. At the same time, the, the researchers at Medill are saying, you know, digital sites are not replacing the lost newspapers fast enough to, um, to keep up that local news content or to prevent the creation of new news deserts. So um, it's definitely a balancing act. Yeah. Bob, I know you, um, sorry, and then I'll Go be ahead. quiet, but I know you crunched a lot of numbers, and obviously, um, probably the elephant in the room is Bob obviously worked for Schurz for many, many, many years. We're very fortunate to have him working in his part-time basis in our, in our newsroom, but um, I know you went back and counted just uh, manually the number yeah, of stories. Yeah, did the old-fashioned way. Yeah, and the effect <laughs> on the community and the number of of stories that are being covered is yeah the, the numbers were kind dramatic. of shocking they were dr they were dramatic I mean it was you know I, I took a look at old newspapers from 2014 2018 2023 and um, as I said I think it, it was uh, if I can remember my numbers 20, I have them 20, <laughs> 28 2018 there were 
uh, what I would consider 1,100 different local stories in the Herald Times in September of 2018, one month. That was actually 2014. 2014, Your count for 2014 yeah. was 1,100. 2014 yeah. was 1,100. 2018 was a little less than that. Like About 970. 970. And then 2023 was? 249. And so... so yeah, so it was a, it was definitely um, a, a steep decline. Um, there, there are certain things that are just that are just gone, and um, those things uh, I believe are, are gone by design, by Gannett's design to do away with opinion pages, for instance. I mean, I counted opinion stories as local content. Um, things like calendars are no longer part of the the newspaper. Um, a lot of organizations that used to be covered, nonprofits that used to be covered on a regular basis, are no longer there. Um, high school sports is uh, a shell of what it used to be. Um, public school, uh, yeah, somebody mentioned hotline. A consumer column is no <laughs> longer there. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are no longer there. No longer there, and it's by this, uh, I, I believe, it's by this profit maxim maximization thought and idea. We did ask, I should say here, we did ask Annette for comments. Um, they wouldn't uh, talk to us, but they did send a, a, a statement through Jill Bond, the editor of the, the Herald Times now, um, which will include prominently in the, the stories that we have. So, yeah. yeah, we've received a lot of questions. People are very, very interested in solutions, as are we, and I think that was certainly um, part of our reporting. So mm -hmm. can we pivot a bit to that? Yeah, um, yeah. Can I? Uh, let me just ask this very first one. It's a um, question from Lisa. Has there been any discussion in Bloomington of establishing a nonprofit model of operation for our local paper? Um, I know, Sarah, you talked to <laughs> Tina Peterson from the Community Foundation. Are there, what, are, what are the thoughts on that? Um, there is a local news fund at the Community Foundation, and um, I, I don't have the figure right now of how much they raised. I want to say, well, I probably shouldn't since I don't have the figure in front of me, but anyway, it's, it's, it's uh, not insignificant chunk of change, and there's still, though, talking with um, stakeholders and folks in the community to figure out exactly how they want to um, use that money. So. There are people in discussion, there are really thoughtful discussions, and uh, they just haven't arrived at a plan just yet. All right, and I do know there's a member of our audience from the Community Foundation who's <coughs> monitoring what we're talking about here today. <laughs> All right. um, so we hosted a discussion in our studio with folks who, you know, just like the news, and it was super interesting to me how folks over and over again talked about local sports and that was something they really missed and then arts and culture and I know we've gotten more questions today about that so Jason maybe you can just talk about the the impact of private equity and downsizing staff shrinking um, on those sort of issues and why those are so important to a community well on, on the latter point of why they're so important to a community, I, uh, in my mind that loops back to the idea of it's so central to our identity as a community, right? Of, of our, our, our sense of, of rootedness is often tied to these, uh, you know, sporting events that there is a lot of community pride that's 
uh, embedded within that uh, in a sense of you know where you grew up that's probably a good indicator if you're into sports of what sports teams you go for right and uh, it's friends and family might be there so I think that that's uh, clearly a connection that people have and and why they cherish that uh, that sort of thing and and I would say similar to you know local uh, culture and arts and, and, and that sort of reporting. It's also, I think, one of the more difficult areas, in some cases at least, maybe not so much sports, but uh, unfortunately arts and culture uh, can be difficult to justify. I remember, you know, in my previous career I, I, I was an arts and culture reporter in the Philadelphia scene, and I just remember the roller coaster that the Loster local theater scene w was on, just in terms of funding these these sort of things, and you know, depending on what administration uh, was in office, um, the the outlook looked quite different, or who was in Congress, and so I, I, I think that's always that tug of war, uh, including for public radio and public television, right? Uh, but I, I, I think what what this speaks to, in my mind at least, is that. Um, some of the hard decisions that we'll, we'll need to make collectively as a society is uh, what's most important to us in our, our news ecosystems of, of the sort of information. Because I think we, unfortunately, if, if I'm being uh, realistic with myself, we're not going to be able to return to what was. Uh, this newspaper model of trying to be have something for everyone. And so it's a matter of what, what's most important. And is that that sports uh, for some, and you know that's that was maybe something that drew them in to a newspaper because they love the sports section. But now we have so many other sources of sports news, and is that the priority? Is it arts and culture? Is it uh, covering local government? And so uh, I don't have I don't know easy answers that I would throw out there, but I do think it speaks to uh, needing to pick some priorities of of what. Uh, what news, uh, you know, professional news, reporters, uh, journalists do best. And uh, maybe that means um, having other sources of, of information in, in a local community uh, pick up the slack. I, I think it, it certainly is a collaborative effort to address this that cannot be put solely on the shoulders of, of uh, news organizations and journalists. We do have one of our questions was specifically about this. It says, can you please speak to the decline of local news impact on the coverage of arts and culture? And I know, Sarah, we had uh, our other colleague, George Hale, spoke to, to a person in town about just arts and culture specifically and the decline of coverage of that. Have you listened to that interview or do you? I, I I didn't. Uh, I haven't yet, but I, I do know that in other interviews that we've conducted, people have mentioned the fact that when you don't have newspaper coverage, um, nonprofits and, and other arts organizations, uh, anyone who's trying to recruit volunteers are kind of hampered in that, hampered in trying to get information out about their events, um, and it impacts you know, even how well they can educate their donors. So there are impacts that you wouldn't necessarily think of um, when that one sole go-to source goes away. Mm -hmm. Can I can I ask you how uh, <laughs> sure. how many reporters you had sort of at the height the at the HD and then how if you, do you know how many? Well, I mean, yeah. I can talk about staff size, but we did a lot more things then. You know, we were laying out pages. We were we had a big photography staff. We had a big uh, sports department, but there was a time when we had fifty-one 
people on our local news staff and now there are five on the local news reporting side or that um, I know there are a couple of full-time news reporters a couple of full-time sports reporters and somebody who's spending part of her time I think doing features features work but uh, we would always we had we had a series of beats uh, at the paper that um, you know we always had somebody covering public education somebody covering higher education somebody covering cops somebody covering courts somebody covering um, business somebody covering nonprofits um, so I and a couple others that I'm forgetting right now but you know it was a beat structure with a lot of different people we had our problems too there's no question about that but um, but yeah it's, it's just a different uh, with this as Nicholas talks about the the maximization of maximizing profit um, over the idea of community service which also was a big part of what we considered was part of our role in the community that just that just changes things I want to turn to Nicholas about that does private equity have any uh, role other than maximizing profit I mean it I I personally think it's it's something that you would not be able to change I mean that's that's their, their prior and that's that's basically what they do um, and I think like I think Bob, when you, you and I, and, and together with Sarah, we talked about this, I, um, I always like to refer to this, um, you know, um, sort of like analogy that my old advisor at, at, at Duke University, David Robinson, always used to tell me, which is, you know, you can think of private equity more or less like a lion in a zoo. So the question is, do you blame the lion for eating the kid, or do you blame the zookeeper for not uh, locking the gate? So, um, and I think that's the way I think you can think of private equity. Private equity is the line. The question is, the line's always gonna be the line. You can't really change that. So how can you work around the fact that there's a line that's walking around? So what do you do about that? I think that's kind of like the way you should view it. All right. Sarah, any other questions that uh, have come in? Yeah, most of our questions are very much geared towards solutions. So um, Jason and Sarah, uh, maybe both of you can just sort of respond to that. I know, Sarah, you really looked at a model in Pennsylvania, and you've looked at a variety of different things that people right. are doing to try to and continue to have some local news coverage. Yeah, and there will be a section in our project that highlights some of the solutions being implemented. Um, there are four specifically. We did look at um, a, a public media Merging with newspapers is one model that some folks are looking at, and in um, in Pennsylvania, W, <coughs> sorry, WITF, and the local newspaper chain LNP, they don't like to use the word merge. They told me, but they they have they are working together because the family that owned the newspapers uh, gifted them to the local public media station, and so um, you know that did a lot in terms of combined reporting power and being able to keep. Um, the newspaper is viable, uh, and so, you know, they, they're they still kind of um, getting their footing after this gift, you know, trying, mm -hmm. to, trying to get out their five-year plan, but, so that is one model um, that, that we can look at, is combining newspapers that are, are maybe not family newspapers, you know, a lot of times generational ideas about what they want their family business to be change. And so it's two, three generations down the line, maybe they're not so interested in newspapers anymore. They don't have anybody in the family to take over managing that chain. And so um, in this instance, the family decided the best option to keep 
that newspaper alive and to serve the community was to, to you know, essentially merge with the public media. And when I talked with the representative for the family, um, they were in talks with a lot of different organizations, including some public media controlled organizations, and they knew the negative outcomes that were potentially out there. So they were very, very selective when they chose, you know, they were very conscious of wanting to, that those papers to be able to maintain the mission of informing the community and being the glue for the community. Um, there's also, uh, uh, you know, just trying to make it a nonprofit, a philanthropic um, effort. And so I think Mirror Indy up in, mm -hmm. that might qualify as one of those. Um, so there's an effort up in central Indiana to, to um, create a nonprofit digital news organization. And then more close to home, um, I mentioned Nicole DeCrecio Bow is a is a former Gatehouse reporter for the Evening. I'm sorry, the Spencer Evening World, and um, she has spearheaded an effort called the Owen News Project um, to get news back into her community. And Stephen Crane, who was a former managing editor for Gannett up in Morgan County, has spearheaded the um, the Morgan County Dispatch, which is both a digital and a print correspondent. product correspondent. correspondent. Sorry. Right. So, you know, there are folks working to find a model that works for them locally. It may be a combination of investment from community members. I know Stephen has some buy-in from uh, about nine community members um, that he says donated, quote, tens of thousands of dollars. The local news meant that much to them, and to have a printed product as well as a digital product. Um, so I think each of their start those these startups are just trying to find their own model that works for them, and it's going to be a combination of subscriptions and philanthropy and. In uh, Martinsville, they, Stephen and his group tried to buy the Reporter Times and from Gannett, and Gannett turned them down. I th so I think from our Bob, that's something. Obviously, I I come from the public media world, and. Um, that's something that folks ask us a lot. And so a couple questions we've gotten. What about public radio partnering with the local paper? And um, when you were the editor, we used to partner partner on some things. But I, I just don't know that that is um, sort of in the Gannett model right now in terms of partnership. But yeah, Well, I can't speak for, for yeah. what is in the, the Gannett model. I can say that you know public radio, and this is pretty self-serving for public radio uh, host to say, but it's a nonprofit model that works. So it is a nonprofit model that, that works, but you know, it's, but I, I've said this at other forums that I've been a part of, it's a nonprofit model that is, has a big broad footprint. And when you, when you divide the number of reporters we have by the size of the footprint, um, you know, it's, it becomes not quite as big yes. as, well, it, as we like to think. And we're is. doing three platforms. And we're doing and three three platforms. But it, it, it is a model that's out there and, and is successful, and I think it could be a model that people could, could look yeah. at for sure. I have to cool. say, um, like, and then maybe we can pivot away from this because I don't want it to be self-serving. Um, we, in, in our newsroom, when I started here, we were a newsroom of um, four people. Um, and now we're a newsroom of 17. Um, but it, it used to be amazing, because I've never viewed the Herald Times as competition, because the Herald Times is very, very good at what it, the Herald Times does. I see Laura sitting there, Laura's amazing. Um, and it, w it always gave us permission to focus on something else. 
if we saw Lara was reporting on something, it's like, fantastic, the HT has that, we can go pivot on something else. But now that the HT has reduced its staff, then that means we've, we have been able to hire a few more people, but like you said, it doesn't nearly cover it. And then we've drawn all of our reporters in to try to help fill that gap. But again, I mean, I think Bloomington is probably considered a news desert right now. Um, um, is it? I no, don't think no. so because we have, what, you five? Have at least. Well, you have five. I mean, I mean, a news desert is where there is no outlet, no comprehensive nothing. outlet, okay. right? And even though, for example, Owen and um, Lawrence County have, you know, folks who are doing blogs and may maintain a digital website that has selective stories of interest and, you know, and the local council may be showing their meetings on Facebook, it's not like there's one local comprehensive news source and Monroe doesn't really qualify because there are multiple sources for news you know, you've got a couple of radio stations you've got a couple of digital sites and so to look so a little harder for it right right I mean you still have to do the work right the, yeah. the consumer still has to do the work yeah. to find the news they want yeah yeah I, I want to ask you guys because you actually got to talk to someone from the Schurz family um, it was it just reminded me because you were talking about the folks in Pennsylvania how they carefully vetted all of these different companies to figure out who they were potentially going to partner with or sell to. Right. So Todd Schurz did tell uh, yeah. Bob that that they were mindful of, of what where they were going yeah, when they let go of the papers. Yeah. Let me let me say that Todd Schurz spent an hour with us. Todd was the CEO and president when they sold the company. And you know, there's nobody in the Schurz family uh, right now that is a part of uh, the ne the sixth generation, the the younger generation. None of them are in the family business now. So the Schurz family was, you know, that generation of Schurz family was ready to sell. And, it, and they tried to do a little uh, like what private equity does. They bought a lot of smaller papers. They tried to maximize the profit by, short, by, by reducing the staff in certain areas. But, but they were at the same time mindful of being a part of the community. As, you know, Todd said, you know, we, without a successful community we can't be a successful newspaper that was his point of view and he and so he and the company decided that they needed to find uh, somebody who would have more chance at success and they thought that that the news media uh, company and and gatehouse would be that company and in fact they may have been had a had a chance but then they merged with Gannett about six months later and the Schurz family, Todd says, had no idea that that was going to happen. And so then it was like, we have nothing to say about it. He, he said he would get calls from people saying, can't you do something about the newspaper? He goes, I am not involved anymore. Yeah. And we have no, no say about what's going on there. So We've gotten a couple questions, Nicholas, perhaps you can answer. Um, with folks wondering about private equity's impact beyond just the news. And um, Chris asked, do you think the loss of local control goes beyond topics of housing and news? Could these private equity issues be canaries in the coal mine? Are these the new out of control monopolies of our age? Um, yeah, as I said, I mean, private equities invest in pretty much any industry. I, I recently um, finished a research project that I worked on pretty much most of the time this year, where I looked at the effect of private equity investing in uh, gun retail chains. Um, and sort of like I was trying to get to the question more like, 
more guns, uh, less crime, more guns, more crime, sort of, and, and private equity, again, I use this as a tool to see what happens if you infuse profit maximization into gun retailers, what happens sort of like with the supply of guns and how are these guns laid on linked to crime. And, um, <coughs> and I also did find that in this case, you know, like you have a tremendous pressure of reducing costs, like staffing um, is a big, big point. So you have less staff, like there's less incentives, you know, like to do these background checks that we have, we have everything in place, but it's like, you know, it's another channel where mm -hmm. we have rules and regulations in place, but the question is if you don't have the staff that is trained well enough um, to basically fulfill these, you know, requirements that we are, you know, or basically like apply to laws and regulations, and there is not enforcement of these laws on top of that, which we have in the gun industry. I mean, if you take Indiana, for example, you have roughly six ATF agents working for like the District of Indiana, um, and um, so you know, like you can imagine how you know th there's barely any chance for these six ATF agents um, to basically cover inspections of I don't know how many um, you know uh, gun dealers we have. So in other words, it's not really that we don't have the rules, and that's another industry where you have private equity coming in. They exploit these you know like le little enforcements that we have. Um, and, and obviously that has negative externalities. Um, and then, as, as you said, I mean, there are other industries. Um, we, we see that um, healthcare, I think, is a big, 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 big one. I talked about this. Um, prison, you take the prison system, yeah. right? Private equity goes, in, and, and, and goes into the prison system. So what do you have? You have a less quality of, um, you know, um, um, you know, like, like, like the reduction quality has been documented and shown in, in, in various studies in, in, in prisons. and. Um, you keep prisoners longer in the prison, uh, and you keep the public out. So, so I mean, it's a profit model. So, and and yes, I think it goes way beyond just one sector. It, it's basically uh, a, a general um, problem. And I think um, the big question is: Do we need more laws? Do we need different laws that we have in this country, or do we need more enforcement of laws? And for my research that I've done and, and, and people I talk to, I think it's, it's a big problem of enforcement. Um, you know, if, if we don't have enough staff to like, you know, supervise uh, and, and, and monitor um, um, certain sectors, I think it's, it, it can be a problem. Because the problem is also, I mean, this goes back to the media, if, if, if people are not aware of this problem, like of private equity coming into industries and like changing you know, the business model and, and like this leading to negative externalities, if nobody knows about that, um, what happens is that the if the public's not aware of this, the regulator is never gonna like step in and do something about it, right? Because I mean, regulation is basically a product of public awareness. So if you think about like, I mean, again, I, I was doing a lot of research on, on, on the gun industry, I mean, Roughly, I mean, we, we hear news on, on, you know, like mass shootings. And whenever there is a big report on mass shootings, we see that there is a change in law. So, right, I mean, take, take Chicago as a good example, right? So there is a ban of assault rifles, but it turns out that like about 3% of homicides committed in the U.S. are committed by, by assault rifles. 60% of homicides in the U.S. are committed by handguns. Do we see a lot of reports on handguns? We see a lot of like you know incidents where like you have news reports on these type of crimes. We don't, so there is not a need for the regulator to step in and to reinforce certain things because the public is not aware of that. And I think it's it's kind of like a mixture of you know you have this line walking around, but people don't really know what's happening, what what the, what, what what this line does. And I think having I mean 
what we are doing right now, I think, I think, incredibly important. So to get people's awareness of like, yeah, there is there is a there's a type of you know um, company or firm that really comes into industries and changes certain things, and we should be aware of this. And I think awareness create, I mean, public awareness basically helps to, you know, like like to to help like you know regulators to focus in on certain parts of the industry and. Um, and um, you know maybe there's more enforcement and and, and basically um, trying to sort of like you know protect certain interests um, that other otherwise we won't have if, if if we are not aware of this we can't change anything. I, I have a question I want to ask Jason. Uh, Jason, a lot of your research has been in, uh, about public trust in institutions. When you think about these ownership issues, are they having an impact on on public trust in institutions like uh, like the news media or you know Nicholas mentioned several other uh, industries where ownership is is changing I do think it has an impact I I mean it's interesting and I'm sure I, I suspect you're familiar with some of the uh, polling data out there in terms of uh, your general public understanding of uh, the financial crisis that that many news outlets are experiencing. Uh, that is to say that there's not necessarily a strong grasp of the financial. You know, I mean, we're talking about a market failure here. To kind of, I think, in, yeah. in terms of your exactly. field, yeah. uh, where it's just uh, this this dominant for-profit business model. It's just collapsed. It's not tenable. And so I, I think there, on on the one hand, I don't know, and I, it's probably over the last five, ten years, I would guess. Uh, that awareness has um, has probably grown uh, in, in terms of that, but I think that's that's one factor to think about there. But yeah, I, I, I think when you uh, talk about you know ownership and uh, you know this you know of, of any not just a sector like news media, but I mean there, there I think there's a lot of suspicion there uh, for many for many sectors that we can think think of when you talk about corporate interest and that sort of thing. So I, I think uh, as people see headlines and, and hear about, you know, uh, private equity ownership and, and, and kind of swooping in and buying up, I, I have no doubt that contributes to it. Um, Let me ask a follow-up. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the, uh, the causes of some of these things we're talking about, or, or these are the causes, but the effects are a lot fewer people on the ground, a lot fewer people, bylines that people recognize in newspapers, um, fewer people that they see at the grocery store that they know work at the newspaper. Are these things, uh, could these things be contributing to this lack of trust? Especially at the local level, yes. So, I mean, on the one hand, a lot of the trust issues, I think, are national media level for some of the very reasons you're talking about, right? They don't have a sense of, oh, I, I went to high school with this person, or I saw them in the grocery store. Uh, but certainly local media is not immune to some of these trends we see in eroding confidence and trust in, in, in media. Uh, so, I mean, trust is, is a real issue, of course, and uh, it's an important one, but it's certainly, I don't think, necessarily the, the only important one. I, I think uh, by focusing on, on being fixated on trust, we missed maybe some of the bigger picture uh, issues and problems here. And, and, I, and I think really uh, we're, we're talking about uh, content that people 
aside from public media, it's often behind a paywall. It's not a public good, it's a private good. And usually it's people with resources or you know education. And, and so who are you going to cater to? You're going to cater to your subscribers and the people mm -hmm. who have resources. And who are we leaving out in terms of who we're serving in our community when you have this private good dynamic there? So I mean, uh, you didn't ask me, but if you were to ask me, you know, what's, what's the solution here? I don't know how we get there, but I, I, I think it, it's, uh, and people I'm sure would disagree with me some, but I, I think we just need to upend the, the dominant business model uh, to some sort of, uh, and, and nonprofit, I, I, I don't know how we get there, but I, I see that as an important part of the solution uh, where hefty profit margins are not the, the driving factor. Um, and, and you know, being attuned to and connected to community uh, is, I think, how we get there. All right. We only have three minutes to go in the program. So, Sarah, I want to ask you for another, just the, a last sort of top-line comment. What are you looking forward to people reading out of this series of stories that we're going to be doing? Um, <coughs> I, I'm fascinated by by the data to see what's happened over the last de few decades. But um, I'm really excited. I guess I have two things I'm excited about. I'm, I'm excited about um, all the little pieces of data that really paint a picture about the decline and about the impacts. I also am really excited for folks to learn the stories of, of each county. That's the way we've sort of set it up, is to tell the story of what happened in Monroe County, what happened in Owen. Um, and, and the people who were involved in giving you the news there, uh, giving their hometowns the news, and then what's happening, um, you know, to try to revive that. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think just the personal stories that you'll hear okay. will really engage you. All right. Any last-minute comments, Nicholas? One minute? I, I guess in overall, the good thing about news is there's a demand. People are interested still in local news. And if there's a demand, we can provide some supply, and I think there might be something here. If if you have a mindset of not like you know squeezing out the last dollar, kind of like what Jason said, I think there is a solution in this market. Okay, Jason, uh, you already gave us a solution. Any, any, <laughs> <laughs> any last comments? I, I think it's imperative that there is a genuine partnership uh, relationship with with news organizations and their communities, and that means uh, community members becoming involved, stepping up advocating for good journalism, but also, frankly, journalists um, maybe surrendering some of their, um, their power in, in terms of being good gatekeepers and uh, you know, being a, a genuine sort of uh, relationship and conversation with community. Mm -hmm. All right. I once he heard that we used to be gatekeepers, but now there aren't even any fences. So <laughs> no, need for, no need for gates. All right. I want to thank you all for being here today, uh, Jason, Jason Piper. Um, Sarah Vaughn, of course, and Nicholas Huther, thank you for joining us. And Sarah Whitmire, thanks for co-hosting the show today. I want to thank our hosts from the Monroe County History Center and our producers today, Nathan Moore, Kathy Knapp, and Pat Bean, and engineer Mike Pashkash, and also a whole host of WFIU, WTIU people who are here today to help us put on this program. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition.